I think that it makes her life and what happened to her in England make a lot more sense, but they didn't really investigate how serious the situation was. And that is, was the ultimate reason for the annulment was this war and avoiding war with the emperor and trying to keep England safe. And it just, it's, it's always been in front of us. Just nobody really looked at it. Hello and welcome to this channel if you're new here and welcome back to regular viewers. If you love British history then you are definitely in the right place. Here you can find videos about all sorts of aspects of British history. We have short and long form documentaries, virtual tours of historic locations and interviews with eminent historians. It is also the home of the Thursday Tea Time History Chat Live, streamed live each Thursday at 1pm London time, where you can join me, Philippa, to talk through history topics relevant to the week. Now, today's episode, I am delighted to bring to you my chat with Heather Darcy, author of a breakthrough biography about Henry VIII's fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. It's entitled Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister, and was published in 2019. Heather's book gives a new perspective on Anna as a woman from the Holy Roman Empire, placing her firmly in the midst of the political situation in Europe, especially at the time of her ill-fated marriage to England's Henry VIII. Listen out for details at the end of how you can win a copy of Heather's book. Through consulting primary sources and visiting archives and museums all over Europe, Heather has been able to look at Anna's story and that of her failed marriage to England's most notorious king in a different and all the more revealing context, which explains some of the oddities in the story of the pair who, despite not remaining married, did remain firm and close friends. I think all too often the English-centric, British-centric telling of our history has ignored it's ignored more of the influence that's on the continent I don't think that's I think that's just a naivety as well the the story seems to be done and dusted and so that it gets repeated and repeated and what you've done is go well hang on let me just go and have a look <laughs> at it from another perspective and it sheds so much light and it makes so much more sense of um some of the questions actually that are debated, like, is Anna really that ugly? What, you know, is it, would you really divorce someone based on them not recognising you when they'd never seen you before, which was I thought was always very odd, those kind of things. So, so thank you so much for doing this chat with us today because I think people will find this incredibly interesting, insightful and enlightening in talking about um, Anne of Cleves, but we're going to refer to her as, as Anna because um, that is also, that's what you call her as well. So I'm going to let you take over because you have this uh, talk about, about Anna that you do. So I'm going to let you do that and then we'll have a bit of a chat around questions and anything that I can, well, I'm sure I'm going to want to ask a lot. So <laughs> Absolutely. And as always, my darling birds are very sad that they're not fully participating in the podcast. So you might hear them <laughs> chirping in the background. It sounds pretty. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me today. This is the cover of my current book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. And I just love having this image of her on the cover. It was presumed lost, or at least its whereabouts unknown until I was... It, 
saying lost is probably a little bit extreme. It's been in a museum in Philadelphia since the 1930s. There were two brothers, the Rosenbach brothers. One was an art dealer and the other one dealt with rare books. And the art dealer purchased this portrait of Anna, I think in 1939 before World War II, and he purchased it in London and he never sold it because he just loved this portrait so much. And it had been sitting in a back hallway in this museum since then. So effectively, when the Rosenbach brothers died, it's my understanding that they donated their two brownstones in Philadelphia, which are right next to each other, to the city. And so they're able to create this museum. So this portrait, it's not normally on display, but that's where it's been lurking. And I was just absolutely just ecstatic to go find it and go Mm. see it and be able to use it on my cover. So this is a portrait of Anna, I think from around 1538. So pre-Henry. Wonderful. And one thing I like to point out, which I'll probably point out later too, is she has this really intricately um, embroidered hat. And when she officially meets Henry, she's described as wearing a hat embroidered with pearls. And I kind of wonder if it might be that hat. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Yep. So this is my face and her face. There we are, our faces. This is a talk, Philippa, that I usually do at when, the, when I have a, an in-person audience. So mm-hmm. this is the, the welcome screen. So mm-hmm. where were the United Duchies? So the United Duchies were Jülich, which is also called Juliers in English, Cleves, Berg. There was also the County of Mark. And at one point, Anna's brother Wilhelm included the Duchy of Gelders, which remember that name Gelders, because that's, that's very important in the history of why Anna's marriage ended. And also the county of Zutphen. This is, of course, in German, but we can see the dark orange part. So this is, if we're looking at this map here, this is in the bottom right, we see this is about the landmass that was considered part of the Holy Roman Empire. Today, the Netherlands are right across the Rhine River from the city of Cleves. And so when we're looking at this map, I don't know if I, oh, I have a mouse. Fabulous. Okay. So this is the city of Cleves. And then over here in modern day is part of the Netherlands, just to give perspective. So all this dark orange bit is the United Duchies. And then this bit with the stripes, that's Gelders. Okay. Okay. And then this map is a little fuzzy, but same idea. So this is North Rhine-Westphalia, the modern state of North North Rhine-Westphalia. And the United Duchies were effectively or effectively became North Rhine-Westphalia. And we can see how the Netherlands is really close and the border between the Netherlands and modern Germany is effectively the Rhine River on that side. Um, I don't know why I put this up a second time, but there we are again. (laughs) Oh, and here's Munster. Munster features a bit more in my second book, but this is the Archbishopric of Munster, and then Cologne is down here. And this is the Archbishopric of Cologne. So it's kind of sandwiched by the United Duchies. So Anna's parents, there is Maria of Ulichberg and Johann III of Clevesmark. Maria was the only legitimate child of her father that survived. And as such, whoever married Maria would gain the title to Ulichberg by right of the marriage. So we also see this with Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V's 
grandparents, Maximilian I, who was a Holy Roman Emperor, and Marie of Burgundy. When Maximilian married Marie of Burgundy, he gained the right to a lot of, to all of her territories, including Burgundy and Gelders and a few other places. And that's how the Habsburgs were really able to gain a massive foothold in Central Europe. So we have Zibilla, who is the oldest. She was born in 1512. Um, Anna's parents were married in 1510. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Um, Anna's parents were married in 1510. Zibilla was born in 1512. Anna in 1515. Wilhelm in 1516. And this is not a portrait of Amalia. It's just a portrait that I like to use to represent her. There are no confirmed portraits of her as an adult. But this is, um, Amalia was the last child born to them, and she was born in 1517. Anna and Zibilla are traditionally believed to have been born at the Ducal Palace in Dusseldorf. I don't know how accurate that is. The reason being that in, I think it was around Christmas time of 1510, some cooks were smoking bacon and they weren't paying good attention to it because it was Christmas Eve and there was a huge fire. And I'm not sure how much of the palace was destroyed, but I'm under the impression that the grand staircase was okay, but they lost a tremendous amount of property. They lost plate and tapestries and portraits and just a massive amount of things. And I believe the only part that, so this is the Rhine river back here. And I believe the only part that's still standing is this tower, which today is a maritime museum. So traditionally it's held that Anna and Zabella were born in Dusseldorf. We don't actually know, but that's the palace. Her family would have used this palace, her brother. This was his main palace when he was in charge. We can see the courtyard there. So that is the Ducal palace in Dusseldorf. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the fire in 1510. This castle or this palace, for whatever reason, just caught on fire a lot. Um, The last time it had a major inferno, I guess, was in the 1870s. And then after that, they effectively took down the whole thing, except for that tower I pointed out to you. It's a bit like our Whitehall and Westminster palaces. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) there's a church behind it, though, the St. Lambertuskirche, St. Lambert's Church. And that was that existed during Anna's lifetime. And you can still visit that church today. And her brother and um, his family are buried in the church. And there's a huge memorial behind the main altar that he had built. So this is um, Schwanenburg or the Swan Castle in Cleves. So it's kind of on the corner of two rivers. And this is one of the water gates. Hmm. And then here's the main castle and the Swan Tower. This is the big Swan Tower that looks out over the rivers. The castle itself fell into disrepair after a while. It was used as a prison and then it was completely destroyed during World War II. Uh, Hmm. Most of the city of Cleves was unfortunately destroyed during World War II, as were large chunks of Dusseldorf and several other cities that were important to Anna's family. So if they were to return today, they would recognize very little of the city. This is her aunt, Anna. So our Anna had a feisty paternal aunt. She became the Countess of Waldeck. And I think all the Cleves girls were feisty. I think Anna was probably the least overtly feisty. But their aunt, Anna, was supposed to marry Duke Carl of Gelders. Now, Duke Carl had a twin sister named Philippa. 
Philippa's grandchildren were Francis of Lorraine. So we'll talk about him a little bit more and Anna of Lorraine, but they really wanted to tie up the loose ends over who was going to inherit this duchy of Gelders because Duke Carl didn't have any children. So Anna's, this Anna, her father, John II and brother, Johann III, really wanted her to marry Duke Carl. And she did not want to do that. He was very bellicose person and he was a lot older than her. And there was this cute count of Valdeck. So she <laughs> absconded with him and married him and was imprisoned by her father and brother for about two years until they finally agreed to release her. And she had to give up all right to of her heirs to the United Duchies as part of a punishment. I think she had to pay a fine as well. But our Anna who, according to German sources, was born June 28th of 1515, was named after her paternal aunt named Anna, who was still alive at the time. I like, I just think they're just, they're just a great group of women. (laughs) You don't really hear about women's agency as often, I think. So I enjoy it when you find little anecdotes of, oh yeah, this lady just completely didn't Uh, listen to her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and actually one of uh, this woman's children went with, our Anna to England. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I already kind of gave it away, but with yes. did our Anna share a birthday, Henry the eighth. So he was literally twice her age when she moved to England, she was 24 and he was 48. Now, when we look at the German sources, there's only really the one primary source that still exists that tells that her birthday is June 28th. But when looking at secondary sources, her birthday is given as being no earlier than the 28th and no later than July 1st. So not a September birthday. The other thing we have to keep in mind is her brother Wilhelm was born in July of 1516. And when we think about, first of all, how women's bodies work after childbirth, Hmm. and secondly, the different traditions we had, uh, they used to have about women being reintroduced and so on and so forth. Wilhelm would have had to have been extremely premature if Anna was born in if Anna were born in late September of 1515. So the obstetrics seemed to make more sense if Anna's 13 months older than her brother mm. rather than 10 or 11. Yeah, that's so. interesting for a start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So these were, uh, this is Johann I or John I of Cleves and his wife, Elizabeth of Nevers. John I was the second Duke of Cleves. So Cleves was a a group of counties for a long time. And then during the life of Anna's great-great-grandfather, Adolf, it was elevated to a duchy. So he became the first duchy of, of, excuse me, first Duke of Cleves. And this is his son, John I. And Adolf married Marie of Burgundy. So not the one that married Maximilian. This lady was born in the early 1400s. Maximilian, the first wife, was born in the 1450s. But because of that, there was a really, really strong connection between the Cleves court and Burgundy. Johann I and Johann II, or John I, John II. I sometimes switch between the English and the German. (laughs) Um, I will try not to do that as much because I'm sure it's confusing. But they were raised at the Burgundian court. So there was a heavy Burgundian influence at the Cleves court. They were allied with Burgundy quite a bit. Traditionally, Anna's family was allied with or supportive of the Holy Roman emperors, especially with Maximilian, because he, of course, married into the Burgundian family and they were distantly related to his wife, Marie of Burgundy. 
but that is Anna's great grandfather. And we see him with the swan. So is that linked to the name of the swan castle as well? Yes. So that's, so the, a lot of noble houses in Europe, including in France and Germany, hearken back to the founding of their houses with a swan knight. So there is a princess in distress and, a, and being embattled with suitors or men trying to take her, her heritage from her, her, her lands. And then this swan knight comes on a boat and he has this big swan wearing like a silver or golden collar pulling him. And he arrives just at the right moment to rescue the princess. And then they get married and they have sons together. And then either the woman has her son or the woman herself asks the swan knight after years and years of marriage, hey, who are you really? And then he disappears. So that's one of the origin stories that Anna's family claims ancient history wise. They also claim descent from a Roman noble house. And I don't recall which one it is off the top of my head, but that's why you have them standing on the swan and you have the swan castle and the swan tower. So it all harkens back to that. They also typically have, so, you know, when you look at like a full coat of arms, it has a little thing on the top, like a knight's helmet or something like that. Hmm. Theirs is a bright red bull with golden horns. And I don't think I have a picture of it in here, but it looks really cool. If you Google Cleves, um, coat of arms, it should pop up. But this castle is very important to our Anna. So this is Schlossburg or Borg Castle in Solingen on the Wupper, in Solingen on the the Wupper, um, which is a river. And it was not impacted at all by World War II. This is where Anna grew up in this castle. So using my mouse here, this is the Great Hall so Anna's parents were engaged in this great hall and Anna's elder sister Zabilla was engaged in this great hall. This is the main door into the entry. And over here is the chapel. Back over this way, there's pictures of it in my book, but back over this way is the Fallensima, which I'll tell you more about in just a moment. And there were two ways to get in the chapel. One was off this foyer where you could either go into the great hall, the chapel or the Fallensima or one directly from the Fallensima. The Fallensima literally means ladies room, but it was also a name for the women's shadow court. So a woman and her ladies could be referred to as the Fawansima, but they also spent their time in the Fawansima. So it just depends on the context, but effectively all the noble ladies and their daughters and their sons up to the age of seven were, would spend time in the Fawansima they, the women would learn things like how to mend clothing, how to cook, how to balance books, how to embroider, how to, excuse me, weave, how to spin. So very, very practical education. It was not considered overly conservative or restrictive. So one thing that I like to talk about is today in America, every, all kids go to high school up through the age of 18 and they graduate. And that's the American educational system in Germany. All children receive the age, the same education until the age of 14. So in America, that would be eighth grade. And I'm not, I'm not sure what it is in England, frankly. Um, but at the age of 14, they can either go to trade school or they can go to gymnasium, which is effectively college preparatory school. Neither one's better. They're just different. And that's how I like to think about Anna's education. Her education was not bad or, or excuse me, worse or better than an English education. It was just different. And they really, really focused on how to be practical, 
how to run a household. She would have spent a lot of time. If, she only really read German books and conversed in German. Now, the neat thing about Anna and her sisters is their mother actually spoke a different dialect of German than their father. So their father's German has a very heavy Dutch influence. And you can see with Wilhelm that he still retained some of that Dutch influence early on in his reign. So their brother still retained some of the Dutch influence, but all of the girls spoke a form of German that sounds a lot similar, a lot more similar to modern German. So I thought that was neat. And the, the analogy I like to use is if a Scottish person marries someone from Texas, they're speaking the same language, but they might get a little confused here and there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, love but, to, yeah. I'd love to hear the accent of the children in that, in that situation. Oh yes, that'd be amazing. Um, but, but I would encourage you if anybody goes to Germany and you can get to this castle, go here. It has been um, restored so that it looks similar to the way it looked when Anna lived there. And you can get a real sense for the space. And um, one other comment I wanted to make about the Falunsima is that the women would engage with the men every day. They would come out in the afternoon and there were governesses. So nothing untoward happened, but they weren't kept completely isolated from the men's court. It's just, they weren't seen as often. And if there was hunting, they would go hunting. That was a favorite pastime in the United Duchies. And I do have an article on my website that's about the Falunsima that word is spelled F-R-A-U-E-N-Z-I-M-M-E-R. I'll spell it one more time a little faster. F-R-A-U-E-N-Z-I-M-M-E-R, the Falunsima. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Mm. I'll try and email it to you so you have it. Have this. So, do you know what sort of age... Anna would have been at this castle you know what kind of time period are we talking most of her life most, most of her life. that's so exciting that this that, that it still exists yeah yeah I mean it's it's it is yeah <laughs> it is Such a very complete exciting. form it, mm-hmm. and have they have they um restored it as a castle it's not turned into a hotel or anything like that the castle you can't tour the whole thing but they have different so up in the eaves here there's exhibits that you can look at there's um there's several murals that are painted inside the entryway so that image i showed you of anna's parents that's one of the items painted in the mirror or one of the murals painted in the entryway and those were executed in the early 20th century i think they're all done by 1911 and there are several murals inside the great hall same idea they were they were done by the same artist or group of artists and those were completed in the early 20th century but you really get a feel for it it's it was so nice to go there and hmm. Yeah. And it's very secure. I mean, the castle is, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's a little town built up around it, but even for, especially for then, it was really just in the middle of nowhere. And this was part of the Jülichberg inheritance. So this was a castle that belonged to her mother's family. Wow. Um, And then just real quick, there are different types of duchesses. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. There were hereditary or born duchesses this is kind of a distinction we have within the holy roman empire and that means whoever marries a hereditary duchess gets to inherit property it was also considered you were a little bit elevated in a sense over a duchess consort or a duchess region if you're a hereditary duchess and then we have duchess consort so for example when zibilla on his older sister married the elector of saxony he was an elector duke 
the German system can be very confusing. Mm. <laughs> became the Duchess consort of Saxony. And then we have, um, I think I flip-flopped the examples. So Maria also served as the Duchess regent for Eulichenberg during her marriage to Johann III, so during her marriage to Anna's father. And she was frequently included in discussions about what was going to happen in those territories. Mm -hmm. And then Anna was a, an example of a born hereditary duchess. So these two girls are both hereditary duchesses of Ulrich Clevesenberg, and their mother was a hereditary duchess of Ulrich and Berg, but because they had a brother, it didn't really matter that these two were hereditary duchesses or born duchesses. The German word is, when you translate it literally, it's a born duchess of somewhere. They don't, that's, so that's why I say, why I say born. Okay. Uh, marital alliances. So in 1526, it was determined that Anna's older sister, Zabilla, was going to marry Johann Friedrich of Saxony. So this was an extremely good match for them. It also kind of cleared up some of the claims to the Duchy of Ulich. So Johann Friedrich's family had an old, old claim to Ulich. And the best way to avoid war is with a good marriage. So that's what they did. Also in 1526, a marriage was negotiated for Anna with Francis of Lorraine. Now, remember, he is Philippa of Gelder's grandson slash the bellicose Duke Carl of Gelder's great nephew. And at this point, the heir to the United to, uh, to Gelder's. Right. Possibly, possibly through, <laughs> through the sister. But don't worry, it's going to get messy. So we often hear that one of the reasons why Henry annulled his marriage to Anna was because of this marital arrangement. So there's two different types of marriage contracts. There's de futuro, which means that you have to fulfill certain conditions before the marriage is legally binding. And then there's de presenti, which means the second that you sign the document, you're married. These two had a de futuro marriage arrangement, and a lot of it centered on Anna's dad paying money to Duke Carl. We'll come back to that. Mm. There was also talk of having Wilhelm marry Anne of Lorraine for the same reason to kind of tie up the loose ends with the Duchy of Gelders and who is going to inherit it. Wilhelm's family actually did have a slight claim to the Duchy of Gelders as well. So if Anna marries the Duke of Lorraine and Wilhelm marries the Duchess of Lorraine, then that ties up those loose ends. Amalia didn't really have any firm negotiations. So when all this was happening, Anna was about 11, Zabilla was 14, and Wilhelm was 10. So they were all really, really young when these marriages were being negotiated. And at that time in Germany, we have the German Reformation, which of course kicked off with Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses in 1517. Normally, a youngest daughter in Germany would go to a convent. So I don't really know what the plan was with her. And I'm kind of wondering if because so many religious houses were torn down and because of everything that was happening with the Reformation that Amalie was just kind of an afterthought. But at least at this point in her life, the older three children are having marital negotiations and Amalia was just an afterthought. And once more, this is not a portrait of Amalia. It's just one I like to use to represent her. Do you know who that is? No. So funny story about this portrait. Um, this is hanging in Trinity College, Cambridge. And 
the way they got this portrait was one of the heads of the college, I think in the 19th century, went on honeymoon in Germany. And you can see here, it says a bon fine, right? Well, he saw this portrait for sale and he thought it said Anne Boleyn. So he bought it and brought it back to England. And um, I have since learned this. I thought that this might be a relative of Anna's. And I've since learned that a bon fine, which means a good end, was a pretty common motif in these types of embroidered, I'm going to call it a forehead cloth. I don't remember the German word, but um, I think it was summer of 2019. So there's a mark on the back of this portrait. And in the summer of 2019, there was a portrait of a man that was sold at auction in Cologne. And it had the same mark on the back of the portrait as this one. We don't know who the man is, but we suspect that they're a married couple. Yeah. So we don't know who it is. Um, funny story, how it got to England. And I just like to use this portrait. Yeah, it's intriguing as well. I wonder if anyone, yeah. and someone's got to work out at some point. There'll be something right there. Someone will look at it and go, but that rings a bell about someone else. And maybe as well, obviously with the potential husband mm -hmm. portrait as well. That's a fabulous clue. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the clothes and everything would, would fit for the higher nobility, but I think it was just an important family in Cologne, uh, Germany and not, not on his family, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk some more about Duke Carl of Gelders, and we're going to talk about Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. So remember way back at the beginning, I was telling you that when Charles' grandfather, Maximilian I, wed Marie of Burgundy, he gained the right to owning all these different properties, and that included um, Gelders. Also, in the late 15th century, Duke Carl's ancestors borrowed a bunch of money to fight wars because they all just loved fighting wars and effectively sold Gelders to Maximilian. And then Charles, who knows that Duke Carl really just kind of is a wishy-washy person and likes to flip-flop on things, forces Duke Carl to, to sign the Treaty of Gorkum. And I believe that one was actually signed in 1526 or 27. I know it says 1528 at the top, but the effect of that was that if Duke Carl dies without any children and he's in his fifties now, and I don't recall if he was married at this point, but he had zero children that were legitimate. I don't know if he had any illegitimate children, but he definitely didn't have any legitimate children. But if he died without any male heirs, that Gelders would go to Charles V. And then later in 1528, there was a second treaty, the Treaty of Grave, where Duke Carl is once more forced into agreeing that Charles V will become the, will inherit the Duchy of Gelders upon the death of Duke Carl. So there's these two more modern claims or modern, we should say for, for Charles V to the Duchy of Gelders. There's of course his right of inheritance through his grandmother, Marie of Burgundy, and then whatever sale contracts effectively were signed in the late 15th century. So I counted it up once. And I think that Charles V had around five different legal claims to inheriting the wow. Duchy of Gelders. So 1535. So we were talking about whether or not Anna's marriage to Francis of Lorraine was de futuro or de presenti. It was de futuro. It was controlled by Duke Carl of Gelders. And Anna's dad had failed to pay money to Duke Carl of Gelders by 1535. So Duke Carl sends a letter to Anna's dad saying, you know, 
this marriage is off. It's over. You didn't pay me money. The marriage is off. So Anna was not married to anyone except for Henry. That was her only legal husband her entire life. But again, 1535, the marriage is annulled, not annulled, excuse me, was stopped. The engagement was ended in 1535 between Anna and Francis of Lorraine. And as far as I'm aware, it was really just a series of letters. There was no official, I guess, tree or, or document that canceled it. The other thing we have to keep in mind is that Francis of Lorraine goes on to marry Charles V's niece, Christina of Denmark, the same Christina of Denmark that Henry VIII liked. So whatever had happened in 1535 to end the marital negotiations or arrangement between Anna and Francis of Lorraine was good enough for Charles V to wed his niece to Francis of Lorraine. Right. That's an important thing to yeah. remember. So the legality wasn't questioned from Francis of Lorraine's side. No, yeah. or from the Holy Roman Emperor's side. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 1538, at this point, you know, Jane Seymour's deceased, unfortunately, and Henry's probably having to take another wife. He's got the heir. He doesn't have the spare. He's looking for women on the continent. The aforementioned Christina of Denmark, who is, I think, 16 or 17 years old, and she had been widowed. And she was a niece of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, through his sister Isabella. Marie de Guise, who, of course, Henry's nephew winds up marrying instead. And then Anna and Amalia. In 1538, I'm sorry that the quality of this picture isn't much better, but this is our friend Duke Carl of Gelders. He decides to create a document leaving the Duchy of Gelders to Anna's brother, Wilhelm. Charles V does not like this. Mm. Anna's dad said, Wilhelm, this is not a good idea. But Wilhelm didn't care. So then when Carl dies in June of 1538, Wilhelm, who is not quite 22 years old, becomes the Duke of Gelders. Gelders, aside from all of the legal claims that Charles V had, was strategically important. There were a lot of rivers that ran through it. Effectively, if you control Gelders, you can put a chokehold on part of the Holy Roman Empire and you could isolate the Low Countries, which are, excuse me, modern day Belgium and the Netherlands, and which were also imperial territories or Habsburg Burgundian territories. And Charles V's sister, Maria, was regent of the Low Countries. But by holding Gelders, you can separate or sever part of the Holy Roman Empire and keep it away from the low countries. Does that make sense? Mm. So if you're trying to send troops to the low countries, you have to pass through gelders or supplies. Mm-hmm. So Charles V, not really a big fan of this, but given the old amity between Wilhelm's family and the Imperial family, and also Wilhelm only being a whopping 21 years old, he just kind of tries to gently convince Wilhelm, hey, you need to, you need to give me that. That's mine. Do we know why um, uh, Duke Carl decided to leave Gelders to Wilhelm? Yes. So the, the Fondemach family, the, um, Anna's, fa- Anna's last name was Fondemach without the accent, Vondermark. So they were the Vondermarks, just like Henry was a tutor. There was a 
some hereditary right by Wilhelm's family to the Duchy of Gelders. That's also why they tried to marry Anna's paternal Aunt Anna to Duke Karl, because that would have tied up that loose end as well. If Duke, normally without all the things that Charles V had, without all the claims that Charles V had, if Duke Karl died without any male heirs, then the right would transfer to his sister, Philippa, whose male heirs would then inherit the Duchy of Gelders. Does that make sense? Right. There's so many, I, I'm, I'm going to say this because I think it'll be the same for my audience, so many new names and oh, yeah. territories as well, because of course this is um, the 16th century map of Europe that doesn't bear resemblance to, you know, the, the modern day map oh. of Europe that we, <laughs> that oh. most people probably already don't even have their heads around. So um, yeah, we're keeping up. Yeah. Luckily this, I, people can play this back and go back through it and... <laughs> well, in my second book, Children of the House of Cleves, I got a little bit wiser and there is a table in the front of important persons. Oh, so you can go back idea. and see who the heck was this person? Good um, idea. I, I yeah. didn't think to do it in this one and sorry. <laughs> so, um, okay. So 1539, Henry VIII is looking for a wife and Thomas Cromwell thinks, well, I know that the Fondamachs are allied with the elector of Saxony through the eldest daughter, Zabilla. And the elector of Saxony was very, very pro-Lutheran. And keep in mind that at this time, if you're pro-Lutheran, you're anti-emperor, whereas if you're pro-Catholic, you're pro-emperor. And the elector of Saxony had created what's called the Schmalkaldic or the Protestant League, which was a defensive league against the emperor. And Cromwell thought that that would be a good counterbalance because if Henry marries one of the daughters of Cleves, then he can perhaps become eligible to become a member of the Schmalkaldic or Protestant League. Unfortunately, the elector of Saxony, Wilhelm's brother-in-law, was not very keen on Henry VIII joining the Schmalkaldic League and put a moratorium on adding new members for a couple years. Some of that was because Henry, although he did separate himself from the Roman Catholic Church, was more Catholic light, if you will, at this mm. time, and not quite Protestant. So we don't, my understanding is we don't really see the full commitment to Protest Protestantism until mm. his son, Edward VI, becomes king. Mm. Absolutely. So, sorry, d do we know then, is this a Cromwell idea or is Henry behind this idea? Because, of course, he, like you say, he's, he isn't actually a Protestant or a reformer at this point. He he's he like you say Catholic light. So how would do we know why he what he would have felt about becoming part of this? The how do you pronounce it? The Schmaldic League. We'll call it the Protestant League. We'll call it the Protestant League. Okay. <laughs> um, I well it, because it would have counterbalanced the power of France and the Holy Roman Empire. It did look like a good idea from what I can tell. And interestingly, Henry VIII had actually met Anna's father. So in the early 1520s, when Charles V went to England in part to negotiate a marriage with Princess Mary, Anna's father was part of the train that went to England. So he did, they did meet each other. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was right around 1530. There's more about it in my new book, which will come out next year, but in, well, probably in 2022. So in a few months, hopefully after this is broadcast, but yeah. 
Anna's father had recommended Anna and Amalia to Henry as possible brides in 1530. So they knew in Germany that Henry was trying to get rid of Catherine of Aragon and needed a new wife. Nobody, or at least Johann, apparently didn't know about Anne Boleyn waiting in the wings. So he sent a little letter saying, hey, maybe my daughters could marry you. You could marry one of them and you could marry you could have your daughter marry my son. It'd be great. So um, I don't know who exactly wanted to put it forward at this point, but I'm sure Henry remembered these remembered meeting Johan and remembered that letter from the 1530s. So Anna was not as random of a choice as I think she's been portrayed to be. Also, mm-hmm. we have to keep in mind that the United Duchies, even without Gelders were in, ex- they were the second most powerful territory within what we think of as Germany today, within the Holy Roman Empire. So this was not just some tiny dinky little country. Like this was very, very important and very strong. Mm-hmm. So going back to the negotiations, they of course start in 1539 and Wilhelm is just ecstatic that the King of England wants to marry one of his sisters and Cromwell thinks that this is a good idea. Just a, a brief comment on religion. We have to remember that Wilhelm was never not a Catholic as far as we know, Anna was a Catholic, and it was really just her older and younger sisters that became um, Lutherans. Any idea of Henry joining the Protestant League was more a political than an ideological move, if it was to happen? So. Yeah, I believe so. Right. I am not a historian of religion, but... My book is more of a political legal history. And so from what I can tell from a political perspective, yes, it was based on politics and not so much based on belief. Mm-hmm. Okay. So continuing on with 1539, in 1539, Cromwell and Wilhelm are starting to negotiate this marriage for Henry. And unfortunately and conveniently, Charles V's wife dies on May 1st of 1539. Keep in mind that Wilhelm and Anna are vassals of the emperor. And so to an extent, he is allowed to be involved in marital negotiations, or at least if he does not want to give a blessing on a marriage, it will not go forward. So she dies. He becomes very, very depressed. He goes into mourning and effectively disappears for the summer of 1539. By the time he comes back out there, the marital negotiations between Wilhelm and Henry are very far gone. And I'm under the impression that Charles V did not want to alienate Henry and was interested in still playing nice with Duke Wilhelm in hopes that Wilhelm would give back Gelders. So this is one of the marriage contracts. This one is written in Latin. And we can see down here Anna's signature, and I have a bigger image of it. But that's Anna's signature there, and that's the imperial notary's signature there, and then various seals at the bottom. This is one of two documents known as the beer pot document because there's a little beer stein there with a clover sticking out of it. The city heraldry for Cleves is a red shield with three gold clovers on it, so I assume that's why we have a little clover there. This is Anna's signature right here. So Anna, the born hereditary duchess of Ulich, Cleves, and Berg, and recognizable by this, her handwriting or her signature, um, she consents to it, basically. 
And then this is the German version of the document. So Anna would have been able to read this. And again, we see her signature at the bottom here. There it is again on the German document. Mm -hmm. And we can see that the notary is also written in German on this edition of it. So those are the two beer pot documents. There it is blown up again, but there's her signature, Anna. It's lovely to see her writing. Yeah. Yeah, there aren't too many letters of hers that still exist. Mm. This is the passport. So Wilhelm and Henry had to secure a passport for Anna to go through imperial territory on her way to England. And this is one of the ways that Charles V could have kind of messed with Wilhelm and Henry it would have been by not granting the passport. But this is a passport that allowed Anna and her train to travel through the Low Countries. So through the Netherlands and Belgium and then over to France and then on into England. That's his seal. Mm. I like seals. I think they're neat. So I did a blown They up. are neat. They are very neat. This is part of the marital negotiations signed by our English friends. We've got Thomas of Canterbury, Thomas Audley. So this was uh, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, Charles Suffolk or Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, Thomas Cromwell. I can't quite read that one. I don't remember who it is. Burlington, maybe. Mm -hmm. This is, sorry, I can't see all my screen because. Okay. No, I can't make it out. But oh, so there's Thomas Cromwell's mm -hmm. signature. Mm -hmm. And do you know what these are? No. Those are fingerprints well, on the back of the seal. And I don't know whose fingerprints they are, but this is Thomas Cromwell's seal. So these are either his fingerprints or perhaps um, someone who attached the seal for him. And I just think it's so neat to see somebody's fingerprints from 500 years ago. Yeah. They actually remind me of a necklace that I've got of finger, my, my children's fingerprints when they're Diddy and you can get a necklace made. <laughs> when I first Aww. saw that, I thought, but it reminds me of that. It can't be children's <laughs> fingerprints. Oh. But yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Wonderful. Love that. And here's the marriage contract ratified by Henry. We've got the Tudor colors of green and white. Yeah. And we've got this illustration of Henry at the top. And here is a colored version of it. And then we'll take a look at the illuminated H there. Mm. There's Henry in all his glory in 1539. I just think it's amazing how well-preserved these are and how expensive the pigments must have been to still be this bright. I, I would imagine that these bits that are kind of a reddish in color, those are probably a bit brighter, but have faded over time. But look at that gold leaf. Yeah, it's actually very um, sharp, isn't it, still? Yes, it's it's absolutely stunning. <laughs> and these, these are all records that are held in... The archives in Germany. That's where all of these came from. I was about to ask you, where are these held? Mm -hmm. Right. So 1540. So Anna has her long, long trek over to England. She finally gets there and New Year's Day rolls around. And in the English tradition, it had long been believed that Henry came in disguise and he sneaked in to Anna's room where she was watching a bear bull baiting. And she was horrified by this man and he was horrified by her because she was so ugly. And he left in a huff 
and I don't remember if he's was supposed to have given her the furs or whatever or not, but he left, he was very displeased and left in a huff. So this is where things get a little weird. Mm. We have to keep in mind that the account of Anna and Henry's first meeting, the English account, isn't really written down until the annulment proceedings six months later. Right. In the German account, which we know of from uh, some 19th century historians that were recording the history of the United Duchies effectively, but as far as I can tell, the actual report itself doesn't exist anymore, or at least certainly not in a legible format, just a bit of a tangent. <clears throat> when looking at documents from this area of Germany, if they still exist, sometimes they are so completely waterlogged or damaged because of the wars that you, you can't read them. You know, they know what they are because they had been cataloged before and they might be able to make out something regarding the cataloging, but you just, you cannot read them. So as far as I know, the only way that we know about the German report is through a secondary source. But in that source, it quotes Olis Lega, so the Chancellor of Cleves, as saying that when Henry showed up, Anna didn't recognize him at first, or so there's some truth to that, but that Henry presented her with a crystal goblet with a gold lid and gold foot, and that it was encrusted with diamonds and rubies. And he also might have given her a gold chain that had rubies and pearls on it. He stayed, they dined together. He stayed at a castle not far from where she was, but far enough to maintain her dignity that night, and then came back and had breakfast with her the next day. Huge difference. Huge difference. And that was written days after their wedding ceremony. So the truth might be somewhere in the middle, but huge difference. Mm. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, though, behind Henry's back, Anna's brother Wilhelm is negotiating for a marriage with a French princess. The reason being is if Wilhelm managed to have Henry VIII as a brother-in-law, the King of France as a brother-in-law, and Johann Friedrich, the four of them could then attack Charles V so that Wilhelm could keep Gelders. Hmm. Charles V really, really wanted Gelders, and by early 1540, things were becoming quite tense on the continent to the point where in early January of 1540, Anna's attendants that were not going to be staying on in England left as soon as possible because it was becoming too dangerous for them to travel through imperial territory. Wow. So this is, this is a, a, a powder keg situation. Yes. So, absolutely. It does take a while for the powder keg to, to burst, if you will, but it's, they know it's coming mm. because Wilhelm is extremely bullheaded and arrogant and 23. <laughs> Um, and Charles V is, of course, he's a Holy Roman Emperor. He's incredibly powerful. And he is still trying to gently get Wilhelm to give back the Duchy of Gelders, and Wilhelm just won't do it. So he's negotiating for a French marriage behind Henry VIII's back while all this is simmering in the background. And the neat thing is, if everything worked out the way Wilhelm had hoped it would, and perhaps this is a bit of foreshadowing, I think that the map of Central Europe in the 1540s would have looked a lot different. So 
Eventually, Henry VIII catches wind of this, mostly through his imperial ambassador, Sir Thomas Wyatt. Yes, the same one who was a poet and who was in love with Anne Boleyn. He is the ambassador to the imperial court, and he's writing directly to Henry saying, hey, Wilhelm's, uh, he's making the emperor pretty mad over here, and it's, it doesn't look good. And I have no way of knowing this for sure. And I think this would be a great research topic for someone who is not me, but I kind of wonder if Sir Thomas Wyatt just hated Cromwell because in the writings that I've seen from Wyatt to Cromwell during this time period, they are nowhere near as detailed. And I think they somewhat left Cromwell in the dark of how serious things were with Wilhelm and the emperor. So I don't know. So if somebody's working on a master's degree or a PhD and they want to take that up, I think that'd be great. But that's kind of what I suspect. So, so Wyatt it is at the same time as not di- disclosing everything that he knows to Cromwell, he mm-hmm. then lets Henry know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Mm. As far as I can tell. So like I said, might need further research, might make an interesting topic for somebody that's not me. <laughs> um <laughs> Just because, as you know, I'm kind of more of a Tudor adjacent historian. I do more things with the Holy Roman Empire than I do with English history. I know enough English history to be dangerous, but it's not not my expertise. So in early 1540, Thomas Risley is tasked with figuring out how to annul this marriage between Henry and Anna because Wilhelm is sneaking behind Henry's back. And we're getting all these horrible reports from Sir Thomas Wyatt about how mad Charles V is and that there's increasing rumors of a war between Charles V and Wilhelm brewing over Gelders. So Risley creates the secret council. And the purpose of the secret council was to establish grounds for the annulment. There are three bases for the annulment. First of all, that Anna was already married to Francis of Lorraine. And as we discussed, that was not true. Mm. But Henry is the king in his own kingdom and can do what he wants. Secondly, uh, and that's where we have that description of Henry feeling on his body and her seeming like she was someone else's wife. So even though it was incredibly derogatory, that was how he could prove, if you will, that he knew that Henry knew that she was somebody else's wife. Because he claims, doesn't he claim in the English account that, um, that sh- he doesn't think she's a virgin? Yes. Yeah. So he's trying to prove that she was somebody else's wife. Mm. And so that's the first ground. Uh, The second ground was that he didn't inwardly consent to the marriage. So in his princely heart, his noble princely heart, he just knew that she was somebody else's wife. So he didn't consent to it. And the third ground was that they never consummated the marriage. So that's where you have the talk of him in his deposition saying that he wasn't attracted to her because that was the way that he could prove that they never consummated the marriage. Ultimately, whether they did or didn't doesn't matter. I'm pretty sure that they did, but legally speaking on paper, they never did. So those were the grounds that she was indeed someone else's wife, that his princely heart could not consent to the marriage and that they had never actually consummated the marriage. And the reason why consummation is such a big deal is if he divorced Anna that was a whole nother can of worms and would have created a lot of difficulties for him. It also would have tainted Anna and made it difficult for her to remarry with an annulment. It's like the marriage never happened. Anna still has her honor and her dignity. So she's free to remarry. He's free to remarry. One thing I like to 
call to people's attention is we have to remember that when Henry died at his death, he only had two legal wives his entire life. His only two legal wives that he had were Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr. All of his other marriages were annulled, so made like they never happened. He never divorced anyone. He only had annulments. And when he died, the only legal wife who was deceased at the time was Jane Seymour. And aside from her providing the heir, that was the only one next to whom he could be buried because Catherine Parr was still alive. So, um, but a lot of the negative descriptions we get about Anna come from this collection of depositions that were created in late June of 1540, specifically to support the annulment. Anna, of course, is sent to Richmond Palace in, I think, the 24th of June, 1540. And I don't know how Henry exactly convinced her to do it. I think she knew about these proceedings, but she didn't realize how serious they were. And she knew that there were no impediments to her marriage. So she's like, oh, yeah, this is fine. It's okay. It's just some weird English thing. Um, And then when Anna finds out about the annulment, she's absolutely devastated. I think it was Southampton and Suffolk went to tell her about the annulment. And she initially broke down crying and shrieking, extremely upset. When the report of it was written to Henry, they kind of blamed everything on the translator. On the what? Sorry. On the translator, saying the translator messed it up. Um, So then they they had the they wrote it down in German, and I imagine that was to give her some grace, so that she could have a moment to kind of collect her thoughts and be by herself and read this document. But she was extremely upset. This was not something that she was happy with. So I, I. I'm imagining from her point of view, all sorts of things are going through her head. Not only has she moved country to marry someone she's never met and live in a country and commit herself to a country she's never been to, but she would have been aware. Do do you think she'd have been frightened because she would have been aware of what had happened to, um, well, to to Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn? I know different, but equally... um, not equally, sorry, but he 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 got rid of both. <laughs> Do you think she was some of her reaction was fear? I don't know. Um, I don't like to talk about feelings just because I really don't know. Mm. My my one response that I think is fair with Anne Boleyn is Anne Boleyn would was considered a traitor. So I don't know if we we see Anne Boleyn very differently today than mm-hmm. how she would have been presented back then. So. It's possible that Anna saw Anne Boleyn as a traitor and that she got what she deserved. I don't, we have no way of knowing that because again, that's a feelings question, but that wouldn't surprise me. And also with the propaganda surrounding Anne Boleyn back then, as far as Catherine of Aragon, I don't know. Um, Traditionally, my understanding is someone in Catherine's position normally would have gone and allowed Henry to remarry, but Catherine was the daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand, gosh darn it. Um, so, so was there fear? Yes. Was it fear of Henry? I don't know. Okay. Thank you. And this is just my little graphic of them telling. telling I've her. not seen that portrait of, uh, <laughs> of Charles Brandon before. Not the most flattering. No, he's, he's, he's certainly no Henry Cavill in that, is he? No. <laughs> Um, so Cromwell, of course, is taken into custody in early June of 1540. And while he's in custody, he's visited by a couple of Henry's officials and they tell him, Hey, you're going to be beheaded. 
we have this attestation that we wrote that says everything about what was wrong with Anna and Henry's marriage and you need to sign it. So he signs it. And then he writes a letter in his own handwriting that mirrors what this attestation says. And at the end, he says, I cry for mercy, 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 and signs it. <laughs> and then still gets beheaded. So one can, can, I think, assume that he did not sign that attestation or write that letter that echoed it without feeling some form of duress. Mm-hmm. And the broad strokes of Anna and Henry's relationship have always, in the English tradition, been based off that attestation and that letter that were, that were signed by Cromwell right after he found out he was going to be executed. For anyone listening on the podcast who can't actually see what we're looking at, <laughs> Heather's got the Cromwell portrait and then him without his head, so just the rest of it, which is why I laughed at probably what sounded like an inappropriate moment. Um, yes, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, he's he's at this point wanting to secure either a pardon or a quick dispatch. Yes. Isn't he at this point, yeah. Yes. So, and then of course, um, Anna was forced into telling Wilhelm about it and saying that, oh, everything's fine, but you know, I'm not married anymore, but it's fine. Wilhelm in the meantime, cause this is summer 1540, it's been agreed that he's going to marry, um, Francis the first niece, Jean d'Albray. I don't believe the official documents for the marriage have been signed yet. And the marriage itself doesn't actually take place till 1541, but the French marriage has been negotiated. And we can see here too, there's another example of Anna's signature at the bottom. And she signs as the hereditary duchess of Ulick, Cleves and Berg and so on in this one. So my impression from the couple letters of Anna's that I have seen is throughout her life, she would sign her letters to her family as the hereditary duchess of Ulick, Berg. But when she was in England, she would sign as the daughter of Cleves. Okay. So now Wilhelm has one less ally to go up against Charles V. Henry, of course, marries Catherine Howard as fast as possible. For the record, I do believe that this is a portrait of Anna for several reasons. Um, first of all, we know that Anna dressed in the French style. When you compare the face, her face to the other uh, known portraits of Anna, it is uncanny. This is a very dark image of the portrait. In the portrait, her hair is actually much lighter. Um, and when we think about what Henry did with Anne Boleyn and all the images of her after she died and she was considered a traitor, I don't know why Henry would randomly hold on to an image of Catherine Howard. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. So I do believe that this is Anna. And I was very excited when Franny Moyle's research came out and that she also believes that it's Anna of Cleves. I had thought this back when I was writing my first book, but I only wanted to shock the English so much. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to, to Franny Moyle for her research. And you, if you guys want, you should pick up her book on Hans Holbein. It's absolutely fabulous. But when I made this presentation, I was not quite ready to rattle as many cages. So um, anyway, Henry marries Catherine Howard within days of the annulment becoming official. This had a couple different effects. By the time the news got to Wilhelm that Anna's marriage was annulled, it would be extremely difficult for Wilhelm to force Henry to take back Anna because he'd first have to force Henry 
to annul his marriage to Catherine. And of course, Henry is no longer under the jurisdiction of the Pope. So it really is entirely up to Henry. Catherine Howard makes the perfect victim, as I like to say, because she's a teenager. She doesn't really have anyone to protect her. Of course, the person who dangles her in front of Henry is Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, who really just likes dangling his nieces in front of Henry VIII, because of course, Anne Boleyn was one of his nieces as well. So she just doesn't really have anyone looking out for her best interests. I don't know that Henry and Catherine really had a relationship beforehand. I'm assuming that because Catherine was elevated at a point, I believe in April or May of 1540, that this was part of the plan. But I don't know that that meant that Henry was sneaking around behind Anna's back with Catherine Howard. So this is interesting. So, and and we can, if you're going to cover this uh, in a bit, then we'll come to it in a bit. But so just to clarify, because this is, this is a lot of information for people <laughs> who haven't looked at this, well, who, who wouldn't have heard this sort of perspective on the story. So Henry's marriage to Anna puts him effectively in the Wilhelm, Wilhelm, sorry, camp in opposition to Charles V. And Henry yeah. doesn't want to be in a position of being firmly in either camp in this argument. Is that a simple synopsis? But okay, good. Yep. He also doesn't really want to be a tacit ally with the French. And of course, by Wilhelm negotiating a French marriage, that makes them a tacit ally. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Um, So Anna effectively disappears from court Uh, in January of 1541. She does come for the New Year's Day celebrations. In my opinion, this is where we see some of Anna's low-key feistiness. So she brings Henry this beautiful, these beautiful horses with velvet, purple velvet trappings, really expensive, which she was able to afford on her own. Now, of course, that's because of the nice settlement that Henry gave to Anna because she agreed to play nice, but Catherine couldn't do anything like that. So I think that was her first shot across the bow, if you will. And then we hear about um, how Anna prostrated herself in front of Catherine and wouldn't get up no matter what Catherine said. And I think that when we read it, because it's just a few words, it's, oh, well, this was Anna accepting her new position. No, no, this was Anna making Catherine uncomfortable, I think. She refused to get up. She's making a big spectacle of it. I think she was embarrassing Catherine. One other thing that Anna did that I thought was very snarky, if you will, that I forgot to mention was at one point in the summer, she had her wedding ring sent back to Henry and she said that she wanted it broken up as a thing of no value, which is also like a slap in the face to Henry saying that your promises are of no value. So yeah. That is is fairly feisty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So Anna, she's, she's living her life in 1541. Uh, She does have some visits from Henry, one of them in August of 1541, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, But by the end of, by November of 1541, Catherine Howard, of course, has her downfall. And so now everyone in the Cleves camp is getting very excited because Anna is not remarried. Henry has now had another marriage annulled and maybe he will take back Anna. So you have, Wilhelm sending his ambassadors over, bringing fresh evidence that the Lorraine match was ended. And here's all the reasons why you can take back my sister. Henry, you really should take back my sister. Why don't you take back my sister? My sister's great. You should marry my sister. And um, 
at the same time, you have Charles V saying, hey, Henry, I really want you to enter into a treaty with me so that when I eventually go fight Wilhelm, you'll, you'll agree that he's our common enemy. Henry doesn't really totally agree with that at this point, but that's, that's kind of what's happening. And then in January of 1542, there is, of course, a rumor that Anna had an illegitimate child with Henry, which she never did. Um, she never had any Ill- illegitimate children that we have actual proof of. And I'd love to see a record that she did, but, but she didn't. Hmm. And the, where that rumor came from though, is that she had a friend who was, or she had been very ill. And one of her ladies had recently given birth to a baby boy. And the lady brought the baby boy to see Anna while Anna was recovering from her illness. And of course, Oh, it's a boy. And maybe Henry and Anna are going to get married again. Oh my gosh, maybe they had a baby. They didn't, but that's where that rumor came from. Right. Um, okay. So 1542, I I realize it says Catherine Parr, but we're going to, we're going to talk about 1542. So throughout 1542, Charles V and, um, Henry VIII are low-key trying to negotiate this treaty of amity between the two of them. Henry does eventually sign the document. It, there is a provision that's worded such that effectively any, any enemies of the empire are also enemies of England. It doesn't specifically list Cleves, but it's in there. Henry VIII is desperately trying to keep this a secret. Hmm. In 1542, you have a war breakout between Charles V and Wilhelm. It has three different names. It's called the Third War of Geldarian Succession, which is the longer name, or either simply the Cleves War or the Ulich Feud. Those are its three names. Wilhelm and the French, so Francis and his armies initially attack different territories within the Low Countries because it's easy pickings for them. Charles V at this point, I think he's down in Spain but he also has a lot of his troops on the Eastern front fighting the Turks. So several victories, um, spring of 1543, Wilhelm's still trying to convince Henry to marry his sister and that, and telling Henry of all of his victories over the emperor, because Wilhelm doesn't know about this secret treaty. And Charles V was trying to negotiate a little bit with Wilhelm, but then in Easter of 1543, which I think was in early April that year, Wilhelm um, attacks Charles V's sister, Maria, who's the regent of the Netherlands and takes over one of her cities that's actually within Jülich. And the gloves come off then at that point for Charles V. In the summer of 1543, Henry VIII marries Catherine Parr. What this does is makes Henry VIII unavailable to remarry Anna of Cleves. And that's very convenient because then the treaty is still a secret it sends a message to both the emperor and to Wilhelm that Henry is not going to rejoin with Cleves. Yeah. And I think that that makes Henry VIII's sixth marriage make a little more sense. It does because the, uh, the, the flippant summary of why he married six times is always given as uh, the need for a male heir, which of course he gets in marriage three and you can argue, well, there's no spare. But then it, it just doesn't, it doesn't totally stack up um, when he's getting into old, uh, older age and um, he doesn't really give any of the marriages a go. So it can't be the primary reason. Um, but anyway, this, this does make a lot more sense than that, I, I feel. And Catherine Parr had a lot of experience with much older husbands. I think she was, what, widowed twice by the time she marries mm. Henry? Mm. 
So yeah. um, moving forward, Gelder's War of 1543. So when so in 1542, the French did support Wilhelm, but by the time late mid to late summer of 1543 rolls around, Francis abandons Wilhelm. The tide turns, Wilhelm loses. Their mother Maria dies a few days after, um, I think it was the city of Ulich was bombarded by the emperor because she's so heartbroken over the situation. And Wilhelm, this is a, an image of Wilhelm capitulating to the emperor. It's very dramatized, but this is Wilhelm down here. And then this is Charles V on the throne. And this here is Ares, God of War. I think there's a color image in the possession of the British Library as well. There was some sort of book put together that covers the 1540s, which there's a lot more detail in my book about basically the fall of the Fondamach family in the 1540s. But this is one of the images from a different edition that's in black and white. Mm. So Wilhelm winds up having his marriage to the French princess annulled, marries one of Charles V's nieces, becomes de facto part of the Habsburg web. He has to agree to be Catholic for his whole life. So Wilhelm, that's why I said earlier that Wilhelm was never not a Catholic during his lifetime. And he's, he sometimes was kinder to Protestants and observed some Protestant things, but he was never not a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And he had to agree to raise any of his male children as Catholics. And that if he died without any male heirs, that his daughters would specifically inherit the rights to the United Duchies. And then of course they would probably be rewed into more Habsburg things, but it was very, very dramatic. And Wilhelm lost Gelders that of course became Charles V's property again. So these are the, the panels, mm. the oak panels. So we've got the, I just like to show these. So we've got the intertwined AC there. We have the S carbuncle of Cleves and the lion of Ulich. So Anna, after she, after her marriage was annulled, she adopted as her personal symbol, a lozenge or a diamond shape, which was the shape for women and is the shape for women in heraldry. And it had the line of Ulich on the viewer's left and the escarbuncle of Cleves on the viewer's right. And these images are also the same as what is engraved on her tomb in Westminster Abbey. So Anna possibly, she seemed to have a friendly relationship with Mary. She was only about nine months older than her stepdaughter, Mary. And Elizabeth was, I believe, about six years old when Anna moved to England. There is extremely little written evidence of any relationship between these three women. But we do know that Anna was was welcomed to court, to Mary's court initially before the Wyatt Rebellion broke out. We know that Anna and Elizabeth wore matching dresses and rode together in the chariot directly behind Mary's for Mary's coronation. We know that Anna and Elizabeth apparently had some good giggles during the banquet. We know that both Anna and Elizabeth got in trouble for not attending mass as often as Mary believed they would. One thing that I have no idea if this is true, but I really like to think about it when I go to Hever Castle is Anna did own Hever Castle. That was, of course, one of Anne Boleyn's ancestral homes and It's just lovely to think that maybe Elizabeth visited Anna there, but we don't know. Uh, Perhaps one other way that we see a legacy with Anna and Elizabeth is Anna's father took a middle route um, when regarding religion. So he didn't necessarily try to stamp out Lutheranism or Protestantism in the United Duchies. He just didn't want to see it. So if he didn't see it, it wasn't there for him. 
while still supporting Catholicism. I realized that Elizabeth was a little more extreme than that, but she still, when compared to her brother and sister, took kind of a middle route towards. The I think her intention was to have that middle, that middle route, and uh, because it became, you know, her, it, the country became more anti-Catholic. If you, there's a very simplified version of what happened um, as time progressed through various uh, other players having their uh, impact on on her and, and and on on policy so that's interesting so do you think perhaps there's some sort of influence there via Anna uh, to Elizabeth I think so yeah I mean there's no way to prove it because there's no letter from Elizabeth saying that her former stepmother, Anna Cleves, um, influenced that, but it wouldn't surprise me. And Mary gave Anna an absolutely fabulous funeral when Anna died in 1557. And I think that that shows, if not the, the ongoing friendship between the two women, because things kind of cooled off after the Wyatt rebellion, mm-hmm. it shows that Mary cared enough to give this foreign woman the funeral that, that she deserved as basically Mary's adopted aunt. Mm. sounds like she she had a a lot of respect for her it's interesting if this influence although we don't have letters but of course people had conversations (laughs) um it's very tantalizing to think of a conversation or conversations between the the daughters elizabeth especially um and of course we can daydream about it being at heaver castle (laughs) well anna's there one thing I want to point out too with Mary and Anna is that I think in some ways Mary might have still seen Anna as a relative because when Wilhelm marries a Habsburg daughter, keep in mind the Habsburgs at this point were related to Isabella and Ferdinand, which are Mary's grandparents. Mm. So I think, and 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 that also made Mary a cousin of Wilhelm's children because of the Habsburg side. Nice. So I know that they corresponded. Wilhelm is of course a Catholic, but I think that she might've also viewed Anna as being a relative, not just because she, Anna had been married to Mary's father, but also because Anna's brother Wilhelm is now within the Habsburg fold and Mary herself is within the Habsburg fold. Interesting. Yeah. So um, that's what I have to say. <laughs> you can pick up my my book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister on Amazon or at Foils or Waterstones or Barnes and Noble or anywhere that you like to buy books. I also have a website, maidensandmanuscripts.com. I haven't updated it in a little while because I, I am still working on finishing my second book, but that will be out next year. Unfortunately, I think the last couple of years of the pandemic have been a bit rough on everybody. Mm. Also, Brexit hasn't been fun. Um, I am also on Facebook as Heather R. Darcy Historian. I do own the group Tudor Renaissance and Reformation History Group. I am not very active on Facebook anymore. I'm most active on Twitter, which I am at HR Darcy History. And on Instagram, I'm also pretty active as at H Darcy History. I apparently forgot I had a middle initial when I was on. (laughs) (laughs) So remember to drop the R, people, if you're looking for Heather on Instagram. (laughs) That is so good. Do you have a title for your upcoming book? Yes, it is Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings. Wonderful. So when this podcast is uh, 
published, then we're not going to be far away from the publication of your second book. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And that book, it's almost, it's kind of a companion to the first book because it, it is a German history book. It explains a lot more about Anna's grandparents and parents and her brother. One thing that's really interesting about her family. So her brother was born in 1516 and he doesn't die until 1592. Wow. And he had yeah, the longevity. Uh-huh. And he was Duke of the United Duchies from 1539 until his death in 1592. So for over 50 years. Right. So he's, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know about the length of other reigns in the rest of Europe, but he's got to be a contender for, I think Francis I reigned for a long time, didn't he? But he's got to be up there with uh, one of the longest reigning 16th century monarchs then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, her family history is just really neat. And I mentioned this earlier, there is a table of the people at the front because it's a lot of German names. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's kind of like a part two or a companion to this one and hopefully helps flesh out things. So if you want to learn more about why Anna's marriage fell apart, read my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves. If you're interested in German history or just more about Anna's family, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and her siblings will be the most interesting, I think. I, I think what your work does, Heather, for... Um, I'm going to say... Well, p people in Britain, but I think people who've taken the British view of our history, which I, you know, I imagine is sort of most people in America as well, because this is, um, a, it is it is a new way of looking at it, and I think it's 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 context. It's it's a big. There's a lot of context here that we did just are not aware of, if you only read um, Anna's story or Anna's story from the English perspective. And I actually think that's possibly true of um, all of Henry's wives, actually. I think the fact there's six of them as well, they're sort of bunched together and it's Henry's story. And then the, the wives, the queens of Henry are told in relation to Henry's story a lot of the time. And then you've had Anne Boleyn has the most, I imagine, uh, written and spoken about um, as a woman in her own right, which is great. And I feel like this was, it was just so required for Anna, not just because, and I think, I think when, when we spoke, when we were prepping for this interview, um, not just because she doesn't have much written about her, but, um, but because there is this whole other story that we're not aware of a lot of the time. And it does go a long way to explaining why Henry annulled the marriage so fast how um how come Anna had hopes that he would remarry her after the downfall of Catherine Howard which is always a question that I had I just couldn't understand why she would you know this this man that everyone else wants to avoid why she would want to have a second <laughs> a second go at a marriage with him and and <clears throat> And also the, the political situation around the marriage, so the political situation, sorry, going on in Europe, and this fact that if Henry, if Henry stays married to Anna, he's coming down on one side or the other of a quite dangerous argument that he doesn't really want to get involved in, um, or at least maybe keep his options open with, I don't know. Um, so this gives, it gives so much more 
meaning to the story, but it explains some of the, the questions that didn't seem to make sense before. So I'm so glad you did this work. It must have been quite... Um, well, uh, tell us about how, when you began to uncover this new story around the, the match specifically, it must have felt like, hang on, am I reading this right? Because this isn't yeah. what we're told was happening. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I thought I was out of my mind. And then it just it kept coming up and coming up because in Germany, this is the story. And, and they do, um, in the more modern things, when they write about Anna, it's of course, oh, Anna was ugly. So that's why Henry dumped her. But when you're actually reading about the history of the United Duchies or of Germany in the 16th century, this is a big story. So from the German perspective, this is not news. It's just, it's never been intertwined with the English perspective of Anna's mm -hmm. story and why the marriage fell apart. But yeah, I just, I, I thought that I really thought I was seeing things for a while or that I was, you know, sometimes people as humans, we make up things in our mind to fit a situation. And I, I just thought that for a while. And then I just kept coming upon it and coming upon it. And frankly, if you understand what you're looking at, there's quite a bit of information in the letters and papers. So there's a lot of information in the English sources as well. It's just, if you don't know what's going on, you might look over it or you, one thing that I found was curious whenever I would read other authors' biographies about Anna is that they would mention this, this war. Like they would mention it just, oh yeah, and then there was a war. But they didn't really investigate how serious the situation was. And that is was the ultimate reason for the annulment was this war and avoiding war with the emperor and trying to keep England safe. And it just it's it's always been in front of us, just nobody really looked at it. And just that um point you you made earlier about Anna's entourage who were going back to Cleves had to get going quickly yeah. <laughs> because this threat of war was was so obviously they didn't know when it was going to happen but it, it was thought to be imminent and so dangerous for them to travel through through yeah. Europe to get back um which again is another perspective and I love uh the light it <laughs> still in a very shadowy corner, but it seems to throw on the Wyatt Cromwell ongoing relationship um, that obviously catastrophically would have fallen apart. And I don't know what it was pre Anne Boleyn, but post the the events of May fifteen thirty six, obviously catastrophically fell apart. Um, hopefully, someone will pick that up for a thesis, yeah, and we can yeah. get some insight into that. That would be exciting. And I think looking at on a story from the German perspective, it also explains why she stayed on in England. She did want to go home mm. at first, but there's a couple different issues with it. She was effectively a political refugee. She, it would have been too dangerous for her to go home. And I don't think either Wilhelm or Henry, aside from the expense of it, wanted to be responsible in case something bad happened to her. So she didn't have anywhere to go. And I think part of the reason why Henry was so nice to her, I guess a couple different reasons. First of all, Anna did nothing wrong. And she acquiesced to what Henry wanted, but she was really a victim, an innocent victim in, in the wranglings of the men in her life. And also, I have to wonder if Henry remembered what Catherine of Aragon's life was like after Arthur Tudor died and Catherine was effectively abandoned by her own father in England and was impoverished and all those things. 
I wonder if Henry decided to be kind to Anna because he remembered that experience that Catherine of Aragon had. Mm. Which he was, of course, well aware of, old enough to remember it. And he marries Catherine. It's one of his first decisions, independent decisions he makes after becoming king, isn't it, to to marry Catherine. So I imagine he would have been yeah, very aware of what she'd have what she was going through and then maybe they spoke who knows about what happened but um because Anna and Henry get on don't they 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 seem to get on very well yeah well and there's no hint of trouble with their relationship until the annulment proceedings there's absolutely no in the English sources at least there's no bad reports it's really um, when it comes time for, well, you know, Wilhelm's being a jerk and there's this war brewing and uh, we got to get out of this. There's no bad reports. But then continue after the, the annulment as well. She's, mm-hmm. she's at court. They play cards together, I think. And mm-hmm. he seems to enjoy her company. Yeah. Yeah, he liked her. Mm. And he always, and she was always taken care of throughout his lifetime. Things got a little tricky for her when her her former stepson, Edward VI, becomes king because, of course, Edward VI, or rather perhaps his uncles, had no use for her. But uh, throughout Henry's life, her life was nice in England, as nice as it could be. Hmm. Well, this has been fascinating. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I thoroughly recommend your book. I'm, um, yeah. I'm about a third of the way through, but obviously I've had the, the wonderful insight being able to talk to you <laughs> about it directly as well. But um, So I would recommend recommend it to anyone um and i'm looking forward to your new book as well just i'm always looking to broaden my knowledge and i i think context the more i learn about history the more i realize i don't know and i think that's probably a good place for any any person actually um looking at history should come from and because the context of all these events especially the ones we think we are familiar with or are neatly summed up you know oh Anne Anna of Cleves that was only that was only a six-month marriage as if it was just this little blip in Henry's timeline (laughs) and when we can move on because then of course he goes and beheads the next one which is far more of a juicy story um but actually what you've uncovered is a fairly juicy story in itself so thank you so much for all your hard work. I think um, it's 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 brilliant. It's great. Thank you. So thank you so much again. It's been really pleasurable. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity and have a good day. And you. Thank you. Thank you for watching this video. I'd love to know what you thought about the topics discussed today. So please let me know in the comments. And if you enjoyed it, give it the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so you get notifications when a new video is uploaded. Remember, if you'd like to win a copy of Heather's book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, you need to like this video, subscribe to the channel and answer the following question in the comments section. What is on the back of Thomas Cromwell's seal on a 1539 document negotiating the marriage of his master, Henry VIII, to Anna of Cleves? Entries close on the 28th of March 2022. You can still, and please do, comment after this time, but please be aware that your answer will not count as an entry. The winner will be drawn on Wednesday the 30th of March and announced on the live stream Thursday Tea Time History Chat Live on the British History YouTube channel on the 31st of March. Thank you for watching. I'll see you next time.